foundation of the world, and I thought that phrase, from the foundation of the world, has layers of redemptive truth in it. Because we find it in other places in Scripture. So if you'll just listen with me for a moment, and if you, you say, well, I'd like to be able to look these up later, catch the, catch the passages as I, as I share them with you. First of all, there is an eternal layer in this phrase, before the foundation of the earth. It's referencing God's pre-creation counsel within himself, within the Trinity, to bring redemption. God had considered the entire plan of redemption before creation was ever even a thing. So it's this eternal layer within the mind of God his redemptive thinking and processing. Now, how can I say that? Ephesians 1.4 says this, He has chosen us in Him, He, the Father, has chosen us in Him, Christ, before the foundation of the world. Before anything existed, God, in His pre-creation counsel with Himself, had determined to redeem men unto himself. So there is that eternal layer that somehow is involved with this phrase. Next, there is the temporal layer. And what I mean by that is it is actually this act of creation, where it is no longer something God's thinking about, but God brings into existence creation, the world as we know it. John 17, 24. Father, Jesus in his high priestly prayer, Father, I will that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. You loved me before you had created anything, before this entire temporal thing existed. And so that is a reference to this point where God's act of creation takes place, and boom, the heavens and the earth now exist. And then thirdly, there's a way we can look in this in which we get a third layer, and it's what I would call the chronological layer of this statement. Because he says in verse 4, For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and that is in referencing God actually doing this creative act, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. So it starts there. It starts with the fact that he did do this. That's the temporal layer. He brought creation into being. God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this place, this is sometimes later, they shall not enter my rest. Sometime later, he spoke of this resting issue again. It is God's post-creation outworking of redemption. The eternal layer is pre-creation, God in his own counsel. The temporal layer is the actual act of creation. The chronological layer, now that time exists, is God is working things out. One thing in sequence upon another. And 1 Peter 1.20 gives us a bit of insight into that when he says, Who, in referencing Christ, verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world... We've seen that or gotten a sense as to what that is. Before the foundation of the world, God was already thinking through redemption, but was manifest in these last times for you. 
once creation had happened, now following upon that, God is working out his redemptive plan. So there are these layers of redemptive thought in this phrase of the works were finished from the foundation of the world. And we learn in verse 6 very clearly, he said, Since therefore it remains that some must enter in, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. Looking back on Israel, looking back on who they were, and, and this account that Psalm 95 is referencing, they did not enter because of disobedience. Uh, Paul, can we get that next screen up? We looked at this last week. We said, you know, here is the land that God ultimately is promising to Israel. They got up to this point about here. God said, send out 12 spies. They sent them in from the south. The spies came back. Ten of them said, we can't possibly go in. They are much too big. We can't do it. Joshua and Caleb said, yes, we can, because God has said he's going to give us the land. With God on our side, we can do it. God was angry with them and said, okay, we're going to not bring you into the land because you will not believe me. And for 40 years, they wandered right here outside the land. 40 years, they wandered. And verse 6 says, they didn't enter because of disobedience. They would not yield to God's instruction to go in and take the land that he was giving them. So that's Israel's failure. They didn't get to go in. They wound up wandering for 40 years. It all came down to a lack of faith resulting in disobedience. Now within this passage that we're looking at, verses 1 to 10, we remind ourselves Israel fail, Israel's failure is our challenge to fear. Well, what do we mean by that? We'll go back. We're going to pick it up back in verse 1 now. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. In light of the example that the Israelites have been, that they have this promise of God to enter the promised land because he is giving it to them, but they don't actually enter because of disobedience. They don't actually enter because they cannot believe God for that. It says we need to be careful because we could come up short also. We need to be aware that we, like them, could come up short. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. So they, they heard a gospel too. They heard the good news that there is rest to be had in the land. But they didn't receive it in faith. And therefore, they didn't enter in. We have a gospel preached to us that we acquire by faith, we lay hold of it by faith, by trusting God that he's able to do what he says he will do in the person of Jesus Christ. But it's possible for us to say, I don't believe that. I don't believe God. I don't believe what he has said about who Jesus Christ is. I don't believe it. And I'm not putting my trust in it and I'm not putting my faith in it. And he says, for we who have entered do enter that rest. But it's contingent upon putting our faith in him. And then he goes on. I'm going to pick it up back in verse 6 if you happen to have a Bible open. Since therefore it remains that some must enter in. 
This is part of God's redemptive plan from that eternal perspective that some must enter in and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. Again, he designates a certain day saying, in David, today, after such a long time, it has been said, today, if you'll hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And what he is trying to point out is that when they were first given this offer to enter the land, right here, they were given the offer. They wandered for 40 years, and then they got into the land, and they settled the land. It's actually a matter of a few centuries later before David is, is writing these words about today still entering into, his, entering into this rest, which is kind of interesting. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Well, here's the point. If Joshua, in verse 8, had given them rest, then he would not afterwards have spoken of another day. See, Joshua, here's what we need to understand. After 40 years of wandering down here, and all those 20 years and up who refused to enter the land and were in disobedience, God's judgment was upon them, you will die in the wilderness took 40 years for that to happen. But Joshua, Caleb, and those, I believe there were others who aren't named who would have followed after them. They ultimately, right here, will come from the east side and they will cross into the land this way. And you know it as the story of Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. And the walls came tumbling down and God gave them that miraculous victory he was willing to give them 40 years prior But if Joshua gave them this rest, if they did get in with Joshua, why, centuries later, is David still saying, we need to enter into his rest? It's kind of like, they're in the land. What are we talking about here? You see, they rested in the land physically, but God's salvation rest was still needed by them. It was one thing to enter the land physically, but that was an illustration of what the writer to the Hebrews is talking about. It illustrates that by faith we have to move into that which God is promising. And those who don't move in don't have the promise. Never got into the rest in the land, but there is a greater rest. And David, speaking a few centuries later now, is speaking of a a rest of faith, a salvation rest that is eternal in its purposes. A salvation rest that is just not about political boundaries and, and uh, uh, physical neighbors and, and setting up cities with walls. It's about a rest that only God can provide. This same rest that was that part of the rest that we saw in the eternal layer where before, before the foundation of the earth, God had determined in his wisdom that there was to be a redeeming work in which he would be engaged. And the the writer goes on to say, in light of this other rest, because David calls us to rest, even though they're in the land, there must be something more. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. A spiritual rest in terms of what God is going to do in our lives and ultimately what he will do in the person of Jesus Christ. And notice what he says. For he who has entered his rest, verse 10, has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. And he makes reference now back to the temporal 
foundations of the earth, when God, God created the earth, and then he rested on the seventh day. And he said, there is some reality in that. It again serves as a physical illustration of the spiritual reality as to what God wants to do with us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. For we've heard the same gospel that they did. We've all had the gospel preached to us. The way it was being lived out with them were in the things that we're describing, and some missed it, some entered in. But notice, this rest causes us to cease from our labors. Paul, can we back up to the grid? Thank you. For those of you who are going to be watching football for the first time today, because you now understand a neutral zone, a red zone, and an end zone, you're going to notice a behavior difference that happens immediately. See, when they're moving in this direction, and they're trying to, they're trying to work their way through the red zone, and they realize just getting to the red zone and getting up to, you know, mile marker 3, 4, and 5 accomplishes nothing in the outcome of the game. They're given everything they have. They're laying it all on the line. They give, you'll watch, they give every effort. You'll see running back stretch with the ball to try and get it over the goal line. You will see receivers stretched for all they're worth to grab that ball. They'll get their toes just inside of the end zone. It'll be amazing to watch because these guys are really good at what they do. But they're giving it everything they have to break this plane so that they get past the red zone, they get into the end zone because that's the place that matters. And as soon as they do, their entire behavior changes. They're going to fist pump. Some of them are going to dance. They're going to spike the football. They're going to do things that they'll probably get fined $25,000 that they weren't supposed to do. They might jump up into the fans, into the seats. But their entire demeanor will change. And they no longer are fighting to keep pushing on. Because they made it into the end zone. And the writer to Hebrews says... For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. He takes us back to that temporal foundation of the world when God created it. And we're given six, the account of six days of creation and on that seventh day he rested. Somebody asked the question, how come we don't see God continuing to create? The answer is because he's resting. We're in the point of rest. We're in the seventh day. He's resting. He's accomplished what he needed to accomplish. Wouldn't it be crazy? Wouldn't it just be absolutely crazy if they worked their way all the way down the field, they break into the end zone... They get the points for the end zone, and they say, oh, we think we can do it better than that. We think we can do it better than that. Don't give us those points. We want to start over back here again. Let's just go back here. We'll start again. We don't want those points. We don't want that accomplishment. Or if they get down here to lines one, two, and three, well, that's good enough. 
So wait a second. A couple of things need to happen. You need to, you need to get into the end zone, number one, and some people might fall short. And number two, when you're in the end zone, you need to understand that's it. That's it. That work, that labor is done, and now you start living your life in a different way. But you don't keep trying to push forward because once you've broken that plane, you're where you need to be. Remember where this passage started, friends. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. See, Jesus Christ has accomplished everything that we need. Jesus Christ himself has gone to the cross. He has borne the penalty for yours and my sin. Stay with us in the book of Hebrews and you'll see all of the things and all the different ways that Christ is illustrated and what he has accomplished on our behalf. He's already standing in the end zone with the work done. There's a couple of things that we might do. We might in rebellion say, I'm not going in there. (laughs) I'm not going in. Or we might say, well, I really don't think he's good enough to do this, so I'm going to do it myself. I'll keep working until I work my own way into the end zone. But the problem is, we do not have the capacity on our own to break that plane. We need Jesus Christ and what he's done on our behalf. So we either enter in by faith and let his work on the cross account for us, or we keep trying on our own, And it's what the writer to the Hebrews is cautioning us against. He says, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. We can hear all of the truth. We can hear the word. We can laugh at the football illustrations. We can have all of this incredible, wonderful stuff laid out for us and walk away, get right here, and then walk away and say, no thanks. And the writer of the Hebrews says there are some things that matter in life. And notice the word that he uses. Let us fear lest any of you seem to come short. Just like the Israelites came short, they didn't enter the promised land because they would not receive it by faith. We can hear all of this magnificent truth. We can hear the promises of God and we can come up short. And the writer of the Hebrews is saying that's something to be afraid of. Because getting into the goal, getting into the end zone through the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf is the only thing that matters in this game. And if you come up short on this one, the stakes are really high. It's called eternity. So my dear and precious friends, as the writer to the Hebrew said, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. I'm beholden before God to ask this question. See, there are things that really matter. I'm going to love watching the football game. I'm going to enjoy it, but I understand it's just football. And there are things that matter for the sake of eternity that are far more consequential. And the question that I have to ask each one of us is, do we know for sure that we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ as the only hope and remedy for our sin?
that by faith, just as the Israelites needed to enter the promised land, because by faith God said, I'm giving it to you. So have the faith to trust me that I will carry you into the land. By faith that Jesus Christ says to us, I'll get you into the end zone. Or do we say, no, sorry, I'll do it myself. Or I don't even want it, it doesn't matter to me. Every one of us will be required to answer that question. I encourage each of us to answer it today. Let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. I find it interesting that the writer to the book of Hebrews in a couple of places, as he talks about we, he talks about we, he talks about we, but there's a couple of spots where he says, but what about you, the individuals within this group, the individuals within this larger we, Anybody of individuals who need to give some serious thought to this? Oh, my friends, God's calling each one of us to make sure this is real, alive, and that we have not come up short. It's just as simple to recognize what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. He is our sin bearer. If you don't believe it, stay with us in the study of the book of Hebrews. He bore the penalty of our sin, and God says, look, he paid the penalty You just need to receive the gift that I'm offering you. Trust him as your savior. Trust him to be the one who will get you into the end zone. It's as simple as acknowledging that we are sinners, that we need him, and then calling out to him by faith, saying, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner and I need you. I'll never get into the end zone by myself. But you're already there, ready to make my way because you've completed the work. Lord Jesus, I call on you now. I need you as my Savior. May none of us watch a Super Bowl later today without first securing this issue correctly in our lives. Father, thank you for the magnificence of Jesus Christ and what he has done on our behalf. And Lord, the writer to the Hebrews sets forth a very serious, a very serious word to us about our need for him And that if we're not taking this seriously, if we're not fearing the outcome of this, Father, then we don't understand its significance. So I pray that for each of us individually, you speak to our hearts where our deepest needs are. That nobody today leaves here without having entered into that rest whereby we no longer have to keep struggling or striving, but we are resting in what Jesus Christ has done. Save us today as needed, Lord, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.